Again, we pray that you would use your word, Lord, for us and in us, in Jesus' name, amen. A very vital message, three chapters long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Perhaps it takes to read it maybe about 15 minutes if you were to read it out loud. Not a long sermon by sermon standards, but one that requires much study and is worthy of volumes and volumes of comments because it's so rich. Understanding the Sermon on the Mount is vital to really understanding so much of what the Christian life is all about. Uh, There are different approaches to this book. The liberal church would be similar to the Sadducees of Jesus' day. The liberal church sees it as a manifesto for social action. That if you can obey and follow these principles, then you'll be right with God and you'll, you'll be fulfilling God's requirement for your life. On the other side of the coin, the other extreme, would be what might be called hyper-dispensationalists. And they would say, we don't need the Sermon on the Mount today. It's irrelevant. Uh, Jesus uttered it at that time and for a specific purpose. It's for another age. It's for the kingdom age. It doesn't apply to us now at all. So that would be that extreme. And there would be also that in the middle, which says it's Jesus talking here. We're not going to throw it away. We're going to take it seriously, and we're going to listen to what Jesus has to say and try to understand it in its context. Very, very important sermon. In fact, the result of this sermon, the effect of it, was that those who heard Jesus teach that day were astonished. That's a pretty heavy statement after hearing a sermon. I don't think I've ever had anybody say that after a sermon I've given, that they were astonished. But they were astonished at his teaching because he taught them uh, uh, with great authority, not as the scribes. And they were amazed at who he was. So the sermon develops, of course, during Jesus' ministry, after the first year of his ministry. He's in Galilee. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. And by this time, quite a crowd had begun to follow him. Great multitudes were following him. And as we'll see in verse 1, seeing these multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So his disciples, his pupils, his learners, those that wanted to follow him, that's what a disciple is, a pupil, a learner, somebody who wants to follow Jesus, they're the ones that came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now we know that others in addition to the disciples, also heard him teach because in chapter 7 at the end, those were the people, the greater crowds, that said that they were astonished because he was teaching them as one that had authority. So he gave this sermon within the earshot of many. If you've been to Israel, you can understand how that could be because in that particular place, which is the traditional site where this sermon was delivered, the acoustics are incredible. And you can hear great distances, uh, even in a moderate tone of voice. 
So many could hear his disciples were the targets, but many others heard the message. The sermon has been called the Kingdom Manifesto, and the way we understand that phrase, Kingdom Manifesto, depends upon our understanding of the kingdom. And so we look back to chapter 4, verse 17, and we learn something about the kingdom. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the king that is speaking. And he's telling them that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that they'd all been waiting for, is at hand, meaning it has approached us. It has become near. It's right here. Now, how could Jesus say that? He could say that because he's the king. And when the king is present, and when he begins to work, then his kingdom is also present, and his kingdom, therefore, is near, has approached, and is at hand. That's the meaning. Now, in Jesus' day... As he began his ministry, there were huge barriers, huge problems for people and their ability to receive truth. The major hindrance of the Jews really receiving from Jesus was the Judaism that had been practiced and interpreted by the Pharisees. The Judaism that had been practiced and interpreted by the Pharisees kept people from really seeing the truth that was in Jesus. He had to go past those barriers. He had to have some kind of a way of knocking those down. When you look at the Judaism in the first century, it certainly was orthodox. They had a great doctrinal statement. They could quote the Shema, the great confession of faith of the Jews, Deuteronomy 6.4. They understood... uh, the infallibility of the scripture. They took it very seriously, the law. The problem was that the religion that had been practiced by the Pharisees was external. They didn't deal with heart issues. And they weren't focused on the development of the inner life and looking at the law the way God intended them to look at the law in it being something that deals with the heart. So they were preoccupied with human traditions, like washing hands. Not that they were hygiene freaks or anything, but it was the way they washed hands, ceremonially, in order to prepare for the eating of a meal. These things became very important to them. If you didn't do it exactly the way they had prescribed, and if you didn't obey the Sabbath restrictions that they had put upon the people, then you were out of the will of God and you were considered unclean. It was legalistic, this Judaism as practiced and interpreted by the Pharisees. They got the law all wrong. They didn't understand the intent of it, which is to show us our need for a Savior. And ultimately, the Judaism as practiced by the Pharisees was hypocritical because they ended up pretending to be something that they were not, which is really what a hypocrite is. Now, today we've got the same problem. We've got the barriers that religion presents that keep people from seeing and understanding the truth. And it's religion that does it. 
It's not Jesus that does it. It's religion that does it or the way we practice religion. Today we have orthodox, well-meaning believers who think that doing Christianity is the real thing. But doing Christianity isn't really what makes Christianity Christianity. What makes Christianity Christianity is Jesus, right? It's his life. It's him living in us. It's our dependence upon him, our life in him and his life in us. I love Ray Stedman's commentary, Authentic Christianity. He talks about what happens to a person who initially comes to Christ. He talks about that initial conversion experience, that immediately some kind of spiritual life surfaces, immediately some kind of spiritual experience is real and obvious. And these uh, conversions produce several different possible choices. Somebody's got life, and so one of three things can happen. The first thing that might happen is that after the beginning glow of life begins to wane a little bit, you know, at first... Everybody gets saved. They're just so pumped. They're so excited. They're so, you know, everything. It's just you're driven by this newfound life. I mean, it's just so awesome. But eventually, you know, it starts to fade a little bit. It has to because the Lord doesn't want us to live by feelings. He wants to learn, teach us how to live by faith, right? And so he has to show us that. Well, when that happens, when old patterns of thinking, behavior start to reassert themselves, the first option that the young Christian might resort to is that he starts to really decline. He drops out of all Christian relationships. He drops out of Bible study. He drops out of fellowship, stops going to church, loses interest in spiritual things, doesn't pray any longer, falls back into the lifestyle he used to live before he was even a believer at all. Now, sometimes that condition can be temporary. It can be what we would call backsliding. And it could be something that repeats itself several times until there's a consistency that's developed in the person's life. But sometimes there's no return at all. And we look at a person like that and wonder, were they ever really saved? And with good reason. The second thing that might happen with a new Christian who's brand new life starts to go in another direction, is that that new Christian becomes very aware of the reappearance of the flesh. It gets frightened by the cold heart that they have. They didn't think they had that cold heart anymore. They didn't think that they could do that anymore. They thought that was over with. They thought that the new birth had changed everything forever, but now they're experiencing it. Once more, they get afraid. So they go to God, they throw themselves on his mercy, they trust again in his promises, and sometimes they seek the help of older, more experienced believers who help them through this time. And they then start to obey again, have peace again, have joy again. And this cycle of the flesh reemerging and then fear and anxiety and throwing yourself back on the mercies of God and then being renewed again. This might be repeated many, many times in a person's life. It doesn't have to be repeated many, many times, but oftentimes it can be repeated many, many times in a person's life until 
the person begins to think that this is what normal Christianity is. Normal Christianity is just this cyclical experience of failure, frustration, fear, coming back to the mercies of God, getting renewed and restored, then eventually another bout of failure, frustration, fear, coming back to the presence of God, renewing your faith and so on, and that just keeps going on and on and on. Or perhaps, and this is the best option, somebody actually learns from the cycle and begins to understand that he can live in what we call Romans 8 rather than in Romans 7. And if you've studied that book, you know what I'm talking about. He starts to learn the spiritual life in a consistent way. But what often happens, and this is what Stedman says here, and this is what we're dealing with, I think, a lot today in America. The third and the most likely reaction to this decline of the new Christian is that the new Christian may discover what millions of others before him have learned. It is possible to avoid the pain and, and humiliation of these cycles of repentance and renewal by maintaining an outward facade of spiritual commitment, moral impeccability, and orthodox behavior. He can simply maintain an outward reputation for spiritual maturity that is satisfying to the ego, even though he's inwardly haunted by the fact that his Christianity is a hollow shell. Such an outwardly Christian lifestyle is so prevalent today that a new Christian can hardly be blamed for adopting it and regarding it as the expected thing. He drifts into it with only an occasional twinge of doubt or a rare faint pang of conscience. He's in denial. And it would be deeply offended if anyone called him what he really is, a hypocrite. To him, the word hypocrite suggests something nasty and sinister like the Pharisees of old. He sees himself as a real Christian, even though his faith is only an inch deep. It's not the kind of rock-solid, deep-rooted relationship with Jesus that can carry him through any crisis. The fact is, the peace he claims to have is present only while his circumstances are untroubled. When his circumstances turn dark and troubling, his peace evaporates in an instant. The joy he sings about seldom shows on his face. And the Christian love he talks about is reserved only for those who please him and get along with him. It's all a giant, though largely unconscious, sham. He may be a true Christian in whose heart Christ dwells, but he does not live the Christian life on a consistent basis. He may be a highly moral, highly religious, even a highly generous person, but the reality is that he's living pretty much as he did before his conversion, only now his speech and behavior are covered with a thin glaze of Christianity. That glaze is the first thing to crack and crumble when life becomes irritating, difficult, or threatening. Stedman says, you may think this is a harsh judgment, Many people think that the mark of an authentic Christian is doctrinal purity. If a person's beliefs are biblical and doctrinally orthodox, then he's a Christian. People who equate orthodoxy with authenticity find it hard to even consider the possibility that despite the correctness of all their doctrinal positions, they may have missed the deepest reality of the authentic Christian life. But we must never forget that true Christianity is more than teaching. It is a way of life. In fact, it is life itself. He who has the Son has life. 
Remember? So you get the idea. You get the idea here in what Stedman is writing about the, the decline towards hypocrisy. Where, just like the Pharisees of the first century, we have suffered with and succumbed to external religion. Where it's just about, you know, what we do. It's about the appearances, but it's not about the inner life. Jesus is concerned about that. When he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when it's near, it's a it's approaching, it's, it's evident, it's around us. The king and his reign is here. He means that he wants to be that for you and me. He really wants to have that kind of deep, intimate, personal fellowship with him that allows us to experience his life even when life goes down the toilet. Right? That's real. And the, hypo- the ha- hypocrisy life is just external. It's, it's, it's about, as Stedman says, about an inch deep. I think sometimes about the case of Willow Creek Community Church. And I have to say before I make any other comments, I'm really for Willow Creek Community Church. I'm for the churches that name the name of Christ and believe in the Bible as the word of God and seek to preach Christ and honor him even if their techniques or their approaches don't mirror my own or are those that I disagree with. But that's neither here nor there what I agree with or disagree with. The important thing is there are brothers in Christ. But it is an interesting phenomenon that took place at Willow Creek Community Church. They are the first of what has been known as the seeker-sensitive churches. And it's a very intentional Uh, approach toward ministry that they took years ago in order to reach unchurched Harry and Sally. They wanted to bring them in and win them and expose them to the Christian message on Sunday morning and then get them into discipleship groups and getting them into uh, the maturation process through their programs and their teachings and their midweek activities and so on and so forth. Well, after many years of functioning, as a seeker-sensitive church, they decided to evaluate the spiritual maturity of their own people. And in a very candid and in a very honest and objective self-study, they looked at their people. They interviewed their people. They established criteria for what does a spiritual, mature believer look like. What, what, what are the characteristics of a spiritually mature Christian? And then uh, they began to look at the people's involvement. And they had thought, leading up to their analysis, that participation in the church's programs would be equivalent to spiritual maturity. In other words, they believed that If a person committed themselves to the classes and committed themselves to the small groups and to the things that they offered, they would be spiritually mature. But to their surprise, they discovered and shared this very honestly with the Christian public, they discovered that involvement in the church's programs and in the activities of the church did not necessarily equate 
to spiritual maturity. And even going beyond that, they said there is no direct relationship between a person's involvement in the programs of the church and the activities of the church and them being spiritually mature. And what they concluded was is that those that were not spiritually mature had not learned how to be self-feeders. They had not learned how to live Christianity themselves. They had not learned how to feed themselves with the Word of God. They had not learned how to let the Word of God change their lives and adjust their thinking and adjust the way they handled relationships and adjust the way they lived in every aspect of life as we live it. They just hadn't learned how to do that. They were dependent upon the church, but they weren't learning how to be self-feeders so that they could be mature believers being dependent upon the Lord. Now, I was very thankful for that frank self-evaluation. But I think their evaluation of their situation is very common in American Christianity today. There are many believers that have never learned how to be self-feeders. And so they get involved in the church and get involved in the church's activities and think that because they're showing up to everything, and believe me, I'm one that thinks show up to as much as you can. But they think because they're showing up to everything, they must be mature. Well, that's not true. Not necessarily. Not if a person has failed to learn how to be a self-feeder and someone who can live the Christian life one-on-one with Jesus, Jesus in them. Well, that's the kind of thing that is so widespread around us that we don't even know it when we, when we see it because it's so common and then we're surprised when things blow up over here or over there. And we're surprised by that person. Is that really who that person is? Well, they've been living a very surface life and doing a very good job pretending that that's what reality was. It's to that type of situation that Jesus speaks the Sermon on the Mount. He is very interested in getting us out of that approach to the spiritual life completely away from it and directly back with him. Just Christ in us and we in Christ. That's what he's interested in. So his vision was to teach his disciples to break them free from the bondages of religion. And so he starts, that was our introduction, he starts with what we call the Beatitudes, blessings from the king verses 3 through 12. We're going to go through these fairly quickly. But just by way of background, we call them beatitudes. It comes from a Latin word meaning happy or blessed. The Greek word is actually makarios, which means blessed or happy, fortunate, well-off. Each one of the beatitudes begins with the word blessed, makarios, fortunate, well-off, blessed, happy. And then the characteristic is given. Now, if you were to identify the Christian life and try to guess just off the top of your head without knowing what Jesus is going to teach here, what's the very first characteristic of the blessed and happy, fortunate, well-off believer, what would you say it is? Probably you'd say something differently than the way Jesus started it. He started it in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it all begins. It all begins with a deep poverty 
of spirit. It's the awareness that I have of how spiritually needy, how spiritually empty, how spiritually poor, how spiritually naked I am apart from the Lord and his grace. It's the woe is me, I am undone of Isaiah chapter 6. It's the idea I deserve judgment and I totally don't have it together. Now, this beatitude is the very first step in receiving the gospel. If a person isn't poor in spirit, they'll never receive the gospel of Christ because they won't know their need for it. It's the approach that Paul took in the book of Romans. First, the bad news for three chapters, and then finally the good news. The bad news, you're dead, and you're a mess, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he convinces us all that that's the case. Then the good news. A man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way it works. And that's what Jesus is doing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now when we think about it, Jesus himself was poor in spirit. It tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said, that the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. That's a statement of someone who's poor in spirit. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Same chapter, John 5, verse 30. He says, I can of myself do nothing. That's the statement of somebody who is poor in spirit. Jesus was poor in spirit in his incarnation. Paul the Apostle was poor in spirit. He's the one that said, we are not sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. We don't have it together. We, everything we need has to come to us and has to be given to us. And everything we have is unnecessary as far as God is concerned. That's where it all starts, the deep personal realization of my poverty of spirit. And then it goes from there to mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. We mourn over our own sin. We mourn over our own spiritual lack. And only then can we mourn over the sins of others. It's, it, does do us, it doesn't do us any good to mourn or be upset about the sins of others if we've not first mourned and been upset about our own sins. Because if I'm uh, upset about your sin without having first been upset about my own, then I haven't taken the beam out of my own eye in order to see clearly, in order to take the speck out of your eye. See, I've got to first deal with the beam that's in my own eye. I have to first deal with my own heart. And so I mourn over my own sin, and then I can begin to mourn over the sins of others. James picked up on this theme in his epistle, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaven, uh, your, your uh, joy to uh, gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. That's mourning. But notice it says they should be comforted. It's so weird how this works, but it's true. When I grieve over my own sin and my own lack and my own spiritual need and I bring that to the Lord in confession and it just tell him about, you know, what a failure I am in my own strength. 
I get strength and power from him. I'm comforted. I'm assured. He loves me. He forgives me. And I receive a strength that I wouldn't receive any other way. Very powerful. And then it goes from there to meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I would suggest that only the poor in spirit who is mourning over his or her own sin can ever get to this place of being meek. Now, meekness isn't weakness. We know that. Picture the horse, if you will, an example from nature. Picture a horse, this powerful animal, who has allowed itself to become broken through the the trainer. And this huge, powerful animal that could easily stomp on its rider bends its neck down willingly and allows the bit to be put into the back of the mouth and the bridle to be placed around the head and the reins to be attached to the bridle and the saddle on the back and allows itself to be ridden. That's meekness. There's a lot more strength and power there than the horse is demonstrating. Because there's another purpose. And the other purpose is to allow this rider to ride. That's meekness. Meekness is defined by some as power under control. In the Old Testament it says Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Sort of interesting that Moses wrote that, but... under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there was a time when he wasn't meek. And that was when he got angry at the people. When God, uh, you know, told Moses to go ahead and speak to the rock and water would come out of the rock. It was after the people had been complaining again about there being a lack of water. This had been going on for years in the wilderness. Moses was tired of it. So he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And he yelled at the people, called them a bunch of rebels, and called them on the carpet for their obstinate behavior. And the Lord said, no, that's not right. You didn't, didn't represent me well, Moses. And he paid the penalty for that. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Well, that was a time when Moses was not meek. He didn't control his natural inclinations. It's interesting, Jesus, in a perhaps the only autobiographical statement that he makes about himself, he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. And it was the meekness of Jesus that allowed him to take that basin of water, to gird himself with a towel, and stoop down and wash his disciples' feet. That's meekness. He had the power to call down the entire created order to help him do anything he wanted to do. Yet he surrendered, even surrendered to serve his disciples. So meekness means I don't have to be in control. Meekness means I'm making a choice not to be right. I don't have to do it that way. Paul gave the Corinthians a choice. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod? Or should I come to you in love and with a spirit of gentleness? You know, how do you want me to come? It's your choice. When we restore a fallen believer, we're to go to them in a spirit of meekness considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. So meekness is very important. It, it lowers ourselves for the sake of somebody else. It's a highly relational term. We lower ourselves. We control 
ourselves in order that we can be a blessing to others. Meekness is when somebody confronts you or talks to you about something and you know what they're saying has truth in it, but it's not completely true. And the tendency is to argue and defend yourself and to prove them wrong and to get in their face and show deficiencies in their lives and, you know, just reverse things on them. That's the tendency, naturally. That's my tendency anyway. Meekness just says, no, I'm just going to sit and listen. I'm going to let this happen. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to control my natural inclinations. That's meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, we don't receive all that we'd want now, but we will receive all that we want and much more later when we inherit the earth. That's a pretty great reward, isn't it, for meekness? So you see things are building. Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now we're reaching out into the way we affect others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be filled. By this time, we're really hungry for something real. We're hungering for righteousness. We want to be in the right. I mean, we see so much inner conflict, so much struggle of soul. And hunger means to be famished, and and that type of hunger. Like Jesus, when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he said afterwards he was hungry. Yeah, that's hunger. Hunger isn't just what I experienced this evening when... I couldn't wait for that chicken burrito. That wasn't hunger. That was just, you know, my stomach is used to having something in it. Thirst for righteousness. True thirst, not just a desire for something cold to drink. And for righteousness. That's what the hungering and thirsting is for. It's for righteousness. Because then I will be satisfied. Then I will be full. Notice here, Jesus does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness, for they should be satisfied. But that's so often what we do. We, we try to go after things that will fulfill us. We search for things that will make us happy and make us contented and make us full and satisfied. And we pursue these things directly and we always get disappointed because they never satisfy. And you could save up for years for your dream vacation. You're thinking that dream vacation is going to change my life. I'm going to spend thousands of dollars on this dream vacation and we're going to go to the nicest restaurants and stay in the greatest hotels and rent a convertible and drive around the island and take in all the sights and man, this is going to be great. This is going to change my life. And you're putting all of your emotional and life eggs in that basket, man. That's going to do it. But without seeking and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's going to be an empty experience. It's going to come, it's going to go, and you're going to go, what was that? All that money for what? But for the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they can take that vacation if God allows them to, or they can take another kind of... It doesn't make any difference what they do. They're contented because they're pursuing righteousness, and because they're pursuing righteousness, and that's what they're hungry for and thirsty for, they're satisfied deep in their souls, and nobody can take that away. 
Don't have to have a lot, but you can have a lot. doesn't make any difference to the person who's really hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Paul said, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I can do both. I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content, because he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Strong longing, strong desire to be accepted by God, to be in the right, to live the right way. I want to do it right. That's what we're talking about here. And they'll be totally satisfied. And then another relational one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Merciful ones. What is mercy? It's empathy. Feeling what another person is going through, which leads to a demonstration of compassion. That's what mercy is. I feel for what you're going through. I allow myself to feel your pain. And now I'm going to do something about it. Here Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful ones, they shall obtain mercy. Now here's one where we sort of write our own ticket. We really do. We write our own ticket. How much mercy do you want from others? Well, it depends. You'll receive as much as you give. If you're merciful toward others, mercy will come back to you. If you're harsh and critical and demanding and difficult, judgmental, and that's the way you handle others, then guess what? Others are going to be harsh and critical and demanding and difficult with you. We write our own ticket. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's the way it works. We reap what we sow. If we want to reap mercy, we'll sow mercy into other people's lives. And I've told you the story before, but I was angry with my son when he was 13, and I wanted to separate his head from his neck. <laughs> I just was upset. So I had to cool off. I went out in front and started shooting baskets. I'm out there praying, steaming, missing free throws. And the Lord spoke to my heart. Bill, do you want me to be merciful to you in the same way that you're wanting to be merciful to your son right now? <laughs> I said, no, Lord. I got the message. If I want mercy from him, I better be merciful to others. So I cooled off immediately. The word of God did its work and uh, handled the situation the way he wanted me to. Blessed are the pure in heart. The next one, for they shall see God. The heart, so important. 85 references to the heart in the book of Proverbs. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23. Jeremiah, the famous verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart. So important to keep the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now the pure in heart will see God. Now the word is katharos. It's a word which in medical terms means to cleanse, to be pure, to be unmixed. You've got pure blood. You've got clean blood. You've got a clean wound. You've got a pure wound. That's the idea here. And so the heart needs to be pure. 
The heart needs to be unmixed. It needs to be free from contaminants and germs and things like that. So it's keeping a single heart, a focused heart, the pure in heart. Now, what do they get? What do the blessed uh, pure in heart people get? They get to see God, which is the number one reason to, to remain pure. We get to see God. We see more of him. We have a greater understanding of who he is, more illumination of his nature, all of that from having a pure heart, keeping the heart, making sure that's a, that's a focus. And then the next one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Peacemaking has to do with bringing warring individuals together. The Lord is the ultimate peacemakers. He brought, you know, us together to him. He removed the barriers and hostilities that existed between us and him, right? So he brought peace through the gospel. And we seek to bring peace between people. Primarily, that happens with the preaching of the gospel. We preach the gospel. People are converted. They have new hearts, new lives. The result is they've been reconciled to God. But relationally, there's a lot we can do to be peacemakers. What would our world be like if there was no gossip? Seriously. What would our world be like if there was no gossip? What would the church of Jesus be like if there was no gossip in the church? What would the world be like if there was no one to listen to the gossip? See, it's all market-driven, right? (laughs) So because there's a lust for gossip, gossip works. It spreads. People want to hear that tasty tidbit. We want to repeat that thing about another person. We want to share that story give that inside information it's horrible but our flesh loves it so to be a peacemaker i don't listen to gossip i don't give gossip i just don't talk about i don't share about any other people other than what is positive if i can't say it as though they were in my presence then i'm not going to say it that's just the way it's going to be I'm going to spread rumors. That's being peacemakers. Of course, putting people together, getting them just to sit down in a room. Every once in a while I have an experience where two people, I know they're angry at each other. So I'll say to the one person, did you know that brother and so-and-so just thinks you're the greatest person in the world? Really? And then I'll go to the other one. Did you know that sister so-and-so just, and, you know, and I'll come up with something that, isn't lying. I mean, I would have heard something, or and and you know, you start well, a little bit warmer thought towards that individual than I had before. And sometimes I've seen people actually come together through that sort of approach. It's being a peacemaker. Sometimes you actually have to sit them down in a room, get them to talk to each other. Marriage counseling is like that. Blessed are the peacemakers. What happens with them? Well. They'll be called sons of God, because that's exactly what God is like. And then this last beatitude, which is verses 10 through 12, is actually the world's reaction to somebody who lives this way. Blessed are you. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they should be called sons of God. And then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's the picture. Persecution itself doesn't indicate that a person's out of the will of God, does it? You can be very much in the will of God and be persecuted. In fact, the world will persecute people who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, and who are peacemakers. The world persecutes people like that. Why? Not because they don't think they're dandy people. But because inevitably the person who lives that way has to reveal the source of their life. Jesus in me is producing this character and this characteristic. And that's what the, that's what the world will persecute. The, pers- the world will persecute our claim that the source of this life is Jesus himself. They're upset with that. And so Jesus promises blessedness even for those that are persecuted. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts and you can see that they lived this very, very authentically. It's the way they lived. I mean, they, they would rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord and for his sake. They, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. They felt special being able to suffer for Jesus this way. And Jesus here told them to rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. This partly explains Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. How they could be singing psalms and hymns at midnight and praying. Why? Because this verse came to their hearts, no question. This idea rejoicing and so the spirit of God began to fill them then it goes on and Jesus says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how shall it be salted or how shall it be seasoned it's then good for nothing but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men you're the light of the world A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We summarize these verses and just say we're called to be salt and light. But how do we get salty, and where does the light come from? Can I suggest that Our saltiness comes from living the Beatitudes. And the light comes from living the Beatitudes, Jesus in us. It's that kind of person that is salt, and it's that kind of person that is light. There's something different about it. Now, what does salt do? It preserves. First century, it was necessary for the preservation of meats. It's also used to help with reducing or eliminating infection. They would treat wounds with salt. They would use it to kill weeds in gardens when the salt no longer uh, did its other functions. But look carefully at what verse 13 is saying. You, he's speaking to disciples who are living out the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. Now look at this next line. 
But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? The question of the hour is, what is referring, or what is referred to by the word it in that last phrase? If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? What's the it referring to? Is it referring to, there are only two options. Is it referring to the salt? If the salt loses its flavor, how shall the salt be seasoned or flavored? That doesn't make sense. Sort of a redundant statement. The other option would be, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall the earth be salted? Or the world be salted? And that would be, in my opinion, the better interpretive option. In other words, if the believers, the real believers, cease living out the Beatitudes, they just stop living out authentic Christianity, they just don't do it, then how, with the salt losing its flavor, how will the world around us be salted? How will it be, be preserved from the evils that are trying to take over if the salt loses its savor? It's a good question. This, this verse, of course, helps us a lot in understanding the doctrine of the last things. What's going to happen before the Antichrist is revealed? And before the whole world gives their allegiance to this leader called the Antichrist, who's going to be completely opposed to Jesus Christ in every way. Antichrist means either instead of Jesus or opposed to Jesus. What will allow the world to go after a leader like this? He's not quite atheistic, but he's certainly not Christian. And he ends up having a, a religious system heading it up that involves worshiping himself. What would motivate the world to follow such a person like that? Well, if the salt loses its flavor, the world is no longer salted, right? It's no longer being preserved against evil and infection and putrefaction. What happens when the church is raptured? What happens when all the Christians are gone and are no longer here? Then there's no one on the earth to present, prevent the spread of spiritual decay and corruption. And people will then be free to believe anything they want. We think it's bad now. It's going to be incrementally worse then once the church is gone. The salt will have been removed. The light will have been removed. And so Paul the Apostle in 2 Thessalonians 2 writes about that which is restraining and that which is restraining will continue to restrain until it is taken out of the way. What is restraining the Antichrist from being revealed? The presence of the church in the world. And even more specifically, the presence and the life of the Holy Spirit in the church that is in the world. And once the church is gone, then the life of the Spirit in the church is gone. The Spirit stays here, obviously, because he's omnipresent. But his life within people is gone because the church is gone. You get the idea. So it's very important that we understand how important our lives are as salt and light. 
Salt and light in our families, salt and light in our neighborhoods and our communities, salt and light in our church. How important it is that we live the Beatitudes and really focus on the inner life as Jesus wants us to live it. So these things are matters of great and important study and contemplation. I think we'll stop there and we'll continue on with chapter 5 next week. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us in your word. You've shown us much in the scripture about what it really looks like to live the authentic Christian life. Help us, Lord, not to settle for anything less than the real thing. Not to settle for any form of external religion where we can appear to be successful spiritually and even convince ourselves that we are. But there's not any real and true reality within. Deliver us from that, Lord, we pray. And thank you so much for your word and for the Spirit of God who helps us to live differently. And it all starts with this great confession, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Each of us are poor in spirit, Father. And to the extent that we don't know that and understand that, the extent that we deny it, that we're poor in spirit, that's our greatest foolishness. Keep us from being fools, Lord. And denying the very truth about ourselves that in our own selves we can do nothing. And that in us, that is in our flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. Lord, that we're weak and we need strength. We're sinful and we need forgiveness. Help us to learn what it means to be poor in spirit. To walk that way. Help us to see you like Isaiah did really walk with you. Let's just take some some time now to pray. And if you'd like to pray out loud a prayer of thanksgiving or a prayer of confession or anything that comes to your heart, feel free to do that. We're in a small enough group tonight and close enough quarters where we can probably hear each other. So feel free to do that. We're just going to spend some time in prayer talking to the Lord.